change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Josh Heineke from Park Craig in Wales. This episode is really interesting uh, because we get to really go in detail on his pastured duck egg enterprise. And this, you know, might not be the usual focus, mainly on trees and interactions in the system, but it is very interesting because it gives us a real understanding of the opportunities and constraints of integrating dogs with other productions. And anyone who doesn't know much about that will find it really interesting, um, as we did. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Josh. Welcome on the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. To get started, it would be really great if we could um, have a bit of, a, of an introduction to your farm and an overview of your story. Yeah, cool. Um, well, yeah, thanks again for having me on. Um, so as you guys might be able to hear, um, my accent is slightly strange. I'm actually South African, um, born and raised in Cape Town. And uh, about 10 years ago, I moved to the UK uh, to live and work in London with, with my wife, uh, Abigail, who's, who's British. And uh, yeah, we spent about eight years um, working in London. Uh, my background is in marketing and sales, specifically in the tech sector. Um, so when I, when I arrived in London, um, I, I got involved in the world of apps and smartphones very early on. And that was like my obsession. When I first started my working career, I was obsessed with tech and, and computers and, you know, growing trends in the, in the tech space. Um, but after about eight years living and working in London, Abigail and I sort of reached a point where we were a little bit sick of it all, to be honest with you. Um, we were, we had concerns for the environment. Um, we had a few, we had a few of our own sort of health problems. Um, and we were desperate to just get out of the city and we were desperate to do something with our hands and get outside to be honest you know i'd been sitting in an office staring out the window at the at the sky wanting to be outside and be in the fresh air and um we had always joked about um one day retiring and buying a farm and having animals and growing our own food and it and eventually one day we just we sort of reached a point in london where we were just we had had enough and we started exploring this idea of actually getting a farm and starting to farm. And we, um, we didn't know how we would do it because it's an incredibly expensive thing to, to do, especially in the UK where land is really expensive. Um, and the long story short is we ended up, we ended up 
selling our flat in London and going on a little road trip around the UK. And we were lucky enough that we managed to come across um, 10 acres of pasture in Wales um, with a little derelict um, Welsh cottage about four four minutes up the road from that land um, that was an incredibly cheap buy because the house was was in in ruin and needed work. So so we, we came across a really good deal and we managed to we managed to be able to afford the the land and the house and um yeah we we purchased that in in sort of mid 2016 and um here we are today so um we we started our farm and business sort of about 2017 farm's name is park carrig uh, which in Welsh means Stonefield. Um, and that was that was just the name that was given to the the fields by the previous owners and we just we just really liked it. We thought Park Carrig was quite a cool name. Unlike most uh, Welsh words, Park Carrig is actually pretty easy to um, pronounce for most people. <laughs> so so we thought we'd go with that. but um, yeah, Abby and I have no experience in farming. I mean, we, or we had no experience in farming. Um, we, you know, all we had was YouTube and the internet and Google and the various sort of permaculture books that are out there. Um, early on, we were really inspired by Mark Shepard and um, Joel Salatin and John Martin Fortier. Um, and yeah, we just became obsessed with permaculture, um, really inspired by permaculture and then, and really inspired by the idea of becoming self-sufficient. Um, and then we sort of, as, as time went on and we started learning more and more, we, we, um, we, we came across this concept of regenerative agriculture and, we really we we really sort of settled on that framework as as the way we wanted to move forward with our farm park carrig so yeah that was in 2016 we purchased the, the the land and and really things really only got kicked off properly in about 2017 and are, are you both working you and your partner and your wife sorry on the farm yeah so abby and i are both 100 percent on the farm Okay, um, nice. We made the decision early on when we quit our jobs. Um, in we, you know, when we both quit our jobs in London and sold the flat, we we decided that we made a very definitive decision to to go and become farmers as as a career. Like we, even though we knew how difficult it was going to be um, to to actually earn a living farming. Um, we thought that unless we actually threw everything we had at it, like we would never, we'd never achieve anything with it because I, there's a there's a term called death ground strategy that I came across um, in a book, which is just the concept that if you put your back up against the wall and you've got no other, you know, you've got no escape route, you'll fight way harder um, to mm. survive and. 
that's kind of that's what Abby and I have done since since leaving London. So so we took all of all of our savings and um, paid ourselves a salary from the very beginning and invested all of our money in the land um, and this little cottage that we live in. And um, wow, and we've not that's very brave. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been incredibly scary and, and very stressful, especially mm -hmm. in the first few years when we were just like, what the hell are we doing? Like, we have no idea what we're doing and we don't know where to start. And looking at, you know, 10 acres of grass um, as like, it's like staring at a, it's, it's like a writer staring at a blank piece of paper, wondering what to put on the page. It's just, it, it was, yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty scary experience in the beginning. Um, but the, we were really motivated by the idea of wanting to make a living um, 100% on the land and um, th and from farming and partly the reason why we wanted to do that is because we we wanted to be our own bosses we didn't want to work for anyone else any longer and we just wanted to have the total freedom of running our own business um, and we decided farming was going to be what we did um, so so yeah to answer your question in a long kind of way um, Abby and I have have um, been a hundred percent on the on Park Carrig, uh from the beginning. It would be great to know, in uh, you know, after all of these decisions were made and everything, um, and this brave move uh, to the countryside was done. What have you put on this um, on this blank slate? Um, what are you producing at the moment, and and who are you selling to? Cool, yeah. So like I said, we've got 10 acres um, and that's a, not a lot of space, um, you know, in, from a farming point of view, especially if you want to try and make it commercially viable. So um, our main focus right now is poultry and we, um, we have around about just under 400 ducks at the moment for eggs. And that is our primary business. Um, but around those ducks, we run about 50 breeding ewes. Um, so we sell uh, lamb, hoggets, and mutton uh, locally. Um, we also planted about 700 blueberries uh, on Park Arig, um, which we will, you know, which we actually haven't yet started harvesting commercially. Um, so they've taken quite a while to establish, and I can talk a bit more about that later on. Um, okay. and so we've got the duck eggs, we've got meat, um, we've got blueberries. And lastly, we have, um, annual crops, which change every year. And, you know, really this is only our, um, we've only finished our fourth season, um, actually farming commercially. Um, so each year we sort of try a different thing when it comes to the, the annual cultivation, we try something different each year. Um, last year, we, uh, the last two years, actually, we've, we've done cut flowers. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that later on as to where that did and didn't work. Um, next year, or sorry, this year we'll be, um, we'll be growing squash. Uh, specifically squash um, 
and I could talk a bit more about why we're growing squash this year. But yeah, so sure. it's primarily duck eggs, uh, mm -hmm. blueberries, meat, and then and then a variety of annual crops. Okay, and to give a bit of a of context to our listeners, um, tell us where are you located in Wales, and especially this is the interesting one: how much rainfall do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, um, rainfall in Wales. I should have, I should have actually. Uh, so we've got a lot of rainfall in Wales. Uh, I, I can't off the top of my head. I, I can't put it into. Um, I can't quantify it for you, but it is a lot. Um, uh, we are in West Wales, Southwest Wales, um, uh, in Carmarthenshire, uh, and uh, yeah, it is very wet. Uh, incredibly wet. Um, Temperature-wise, uh, in in the in the winter, it doesn't really get colder any colder than minus five centigrade. Um, it tends to hang around, you know, the um, between one and five degrees centigrade uh, during the winter. Um, although, it, in recent years, I think. Um, it's definitely been generally quite warm and wet, which no one likes. Um, in summer, it, it's um, you know it doesn't it doesn't really tend to get it doesn't get uh, more than twenty five C very often. Um, mm -hmm. There'll be periods where it's sort of between twenty five and thirty degrees C, but they don't last very long. Um, and uh, recently we have had, since we've arrived, actually, I, I think probably three out of the four years we've been here, um, we've probably had the worst droughts in the summer time uh, that, that our neighbors have ever seen, actually. So, yeah, um, and that's, you know, we've not been here long. So um, it's been, it has been very dry in the, in the spring specifically. Um, and then it has been incredibly wet through the winter and autumn months. Um, yeah. Josh, could you tell us a bit more about where you sell your produce? Because I don't know much about Wales, but I, I, I figure it to be um, fairly remote for most of it. And I'm just wondering uh, where you manage to sell duck eggs, if it's difficult or not. And same thing for sheep uh, in a region that produces a lot. Yeah, so... Um... West Wales is pretty remote. I mean, uh, you know, we are quite far away from um, the majority of the uh, um, economic activity in, in the UK. And so this part of the country, there are quite a few retired people who live out here, um, but it's very sparsely populated. Um, so it's it can be quite difficult uh, it's it's not as easy to 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 sell your produce directly um, for at a premium price here as it might be in 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 other parts of the country. Um, we, however, do have two local organic wholesalers um, which we sell our duck eggs to, um, and and we also have a um, there's a, a CSA down in Swansea. Um, called Kaitan, which is really popular. Actually, it's um, a really, really great example of a of a CSA. Um, 
probably a, a, a good global example, actually, but um, especially in the UK, it's probably one of the best CSAs in the UK. Um, so we sell our duck eggs through Kaitan um, in Swansea, and they are about an hour and a half's drive away from us. So uh, it's not convenient for us to deliver the eggs there. For, for quite a while, we actually used a regular courier to send our eggs to, to Swansea for that, um, for that CSA. Um, but over time, it, was, it just didn't work out. There were, there were too many breakages. And no matter what we did with the packaging or you know, complaining to the courier, it just nothing helped. They, couriers just throw packages around way too much. So um, even if you write eggs everywhere and tape, put fragile tape over it, they still throw the thing around. So eventually we um, managed to do a deal with our friends up the road who are organic wholesalers um, and they just deliver them to Swansea for us for free actually they um, they happen to be going there every week so they're just doing us a favor and getting our eggs to Kaitan now um, but the logistics around getting our eggs to Kaitan is, has always been a challenge up until recently um, but that that route to market for us is 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 really great because we're um that's the only channel where we're selling our eggs at a retail price um and it makes a huge difference i mean you know we we only sell about 20 dozen a week to kaitan but um getting that that full retail price makes a huge difference for us so so yeah so we sell to two organic um wholesalers in the area who who then sell that on to the various retailers in the area um, we sell to Kaitan, the CSA, and then and then lastly, as of last year, 2020, um, we we managed to get in with Abel and Cole, um, which is a really great online um, organic retailer here in the UK, and they're one of the largest um, online organic box schemes. Um, they're really cool. You should check them out if you don't know them already. Um, okay, yeah. So we sell. So yeah. So we now, as of yet last year, we sell our duck eggs through them. Um, and uh, the in terms of the meat, we've we've done a we've tried a variety of different things. Um, we've sold uh, our meat boxes online um, by courier, actually. Um, and so we sell. We've sold meat boxes nationally. Um, we we. We, we've sold them both frozen and and just cold um, chilled using an insulated uh, packaging that's actually made from sheep's wool believe it or not um, and that does incredibly well so you you package it up and you wrap the sheep's wool around the meat um, box it up ship it off for the career and it actually stays cold and, or frozen for three or four days at a push um, but we we've sent uh, meat nationally by next day career um, uh, um, for the last two years or so. Um, we've also sold we also sell our meat locally um, uh, to to people through various um, retailers that we know. They've they've sort of put us in touch with people looking for meat direct from farms. So we. Um, 
we've tried selling meat both locally and by box. Um, I actually prefer selling the meat locally. It's much less stressful. Mm. You know, you don't have to worry about the courier losing the package or or the package getting delayed or sitting in a warm warehouse somewhere. So, um, yeah. yeah, I do prefer selling that way. Um, in regards to other produce, uh, the cut flowers, um, we started off uh, selling some at a local market um, and then decided to go for online sales to sell it um, through the letterbox. I'm not sure if you've heard of letterbox flowers before, but no, I haven't. Yeah, so you just get a. It's it's um. There's a company in the UK who sell packaging, which is sort of it's the size of your letterbox, but it's really long. So you can put cut stems in that box, and you can then send those cut stems just by by post, basically, and they can just get slid through slid through the letterbox. Um, and it works great. It works really, really well. Obviously, you want to choose flowers which are going to last better, um, being out of water, and that's that's fine. Um, Abby is Abby did quite a lot of testing and came up with a really nice variety of flowers that work um, by post. Um, so, so that that whole concept works great, and it, it's it's fantastic because we can sell our flowers direct to the consumer, and we can sell them nationally the only problem that we hit was last year was going to be our big year for flower sales and um when it came to buying the packaging for the letter boxes uh there was there was absolutely none available and it was because of covid um i think basically there is something went wrong in the supply chain and the company that we used to buy the letterboxes just stopped selling them, basically. Um, and strangely, they are literally the only company that make these letterboxes. And I went to a few other companies to see if they could make the same thing for us. Um, but it just worked out to be prohibitively expensive. So we just decided to scrap it last year and we we didn't do the flowers through the letterbox. Um so that would have been how we sell flowers, but yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never heard about that system. Um, but I was thinking, um, moving on a bit to, to more the production aspect, um, since duck eggs is the main one for you, could you tell us a bit more about uh, that operation um, and the different aspects and steps in raising ducks? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we keep uh, khaki Campbells primarily, um, but we also have dark Campbells, um, and we also have Welsh Harlequins. Um, Welsh Harlequins are actually related to the Khaki Campbell, but they um, they were a random a random genetic mutation where they threw all sorts of beautiful patterning, and they got named the Welsh Harlequin. But um, as many of your listeners might know, the Khaki Campbells are the world's best egg laying duck breed. Um, and they've, they've, um, they've been around for quite some time and they haven't been subject to the same intensive breeding programs that most commercial chickens have. Um, they're still incredibly healthy birds. 
um, and they are incredibly good at foraging over large spaces. So in about, uh, when was it, 2018, we actually got our first flock of 100 ducks um, for Park Harrig. And um, we, uh, we decided to go for a permanent house. So rather than doing a mobile um, sort of mobile housing, which is really, obviously, um, really popular amongst most regenerative um, farmers. The idea of being able to rotate your chickens behind your your sheep or your cattle is is great. But in our circumstance, we decided to go for a static house um, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is the ducks really. Uh, they don't take kindly to change. They really like having a consistent, a very consistent routine. And um, they don't really like to be moved around as much as chickens might. Um, and sort of related to that, you can herd ducks. So we can always, we can rotate our ducks around Park Harrig, but then we can always herd them back to their house and it's it's not like trying to herd chickens where they just scatter everywhere ducks herd very well and it's quite fun to do actually um but the primary reason we decided to go for a static house is because as i mentioned earlier we we get a lot of rainfall in wales and i was really concerned about how we were going to uh, move any mobile housing around on the fields without completely tearing them up um, you know, if you, if you're moving a house every few days on our fields, 365 days a year, it won't be long before we, we just have a mud pit basically. So, so we decided that instead of having a mobile house that we moved around the fields with a tractor or a car or whatever, we would build a static house. Um, we would, uh, keep the ducks there every night. And then in the morning, we would take them to a different, we would herd them to a different station on the farm um, and encourage them to forage in that particular area uh, for a few days to a week and then move them on after that. So the other thing about ducks is, is that they, um, they really, really love water and they need water in order to feed um so they have to keep going back to their pools in order to properly wash down their food so we've got um little mobile paddle pools um and ibcs with water in them and we've got the ibcs dotted around the farm in various locations uh, and so we fill up these mobile paddle pools with water um we take the ducks to that area they swim and enjoy it and they hang around where the water is mostly. And then when we want to move them on, we just pour the water, the dirty water out into whatever shrubs might be nearby. And then we fill them up in another location and, um, and the ducks move on. So, um, so, the, so that's kind of how we rotate the ducks around the farm. Um, and that's kind of why we decided to go for a, a static house. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the feeding. Um, how do the ducks, um, you said you mentioned foraging, but I was, I was, 
I was curious about the proportion that they of food that they get from forage and how much you have to bring in as as I I, I could expect maybe grain or how how yeah. does how does their feeding work? <clears throat> yeah, so the feed is as with most poultry, the number one problem um, from a regenerative point of view is that it's our and from from the business side of things, it's our it's our biggest input it's our biggest cost um and it's it's where we make the most environmental impact um so we we feed our ducks actually eat about 140 130 to 140 grams of feed each per day um in the winter and then in the summer it'll be a little it'll be a fair amount less than that it'd probably be more like 110 120 grams of feed per duck per day um but they do forage a lot and i think that mm. if we didn't have the forage um for them they would eat a lot more ducks generally do eat more than chickens and that's quite well known they they are very hungry birds um but they are also incredibly good foragers. Um, so we do feed, we, we do have to feed them. And I have, I have looked into many, many different ways as to how we might be able to reduce that feed consumption. Um, and it's very difficult um, because you are asking the bird to do a hell of a lot, um, you know, producing eggs year round and eggs with high quality. So um uh so but the, in terms of foraging i mean those ducks are on every square inch of the fields i mean they go to every corner of our 10 acre fields um and and we have noticed i mean when we first purchased our fields back in 2016 um and we were just sort of walking around on these this big blank set of fields um with pretty much nothing other than grass, um, we had so many slugs. I can't even like describe to you how many slugs we had. In fact, for um, for about three or four months, we actually lived on our fields before we had managed to complete the purchase on our house. So all we had was the fields and we didn't yet have anywhere to live. So we had a caravan and we put the caravan on the fields and we lived in the caravan on the fields for about three or four months and it was so terrible like slugs would just we would come home to our caravan at night and they would just be crawling everywhere all over our like shoes and our tent and our caravan everywhere and like if you walked along the fields they would basically be crawling up your legs i mean wow the climate in wales for slugs is just perfect it's like warm and wet um and honestly like right now we just like there are still slugs in our fields but it just like the ducks have completely put them under control um and now whenever we grow something that is prone to slug damage i mean i'll come back to this later but our annual veg garden or our annual garden is is directly below the duck house um because of the fact that we produce so much manure in the duck house, we wanted um, we wanted a quick, easy place to go and dump that, which is on our annual garden. Um, 
and there are no slugs there to worry about. I mean, we can grow our neighbors, like we can grow crops that our neighbors would be terrified about growing because of the slug, slug damage. Um, but it doesn't affect us because those ducks keep it in check. They absolutely love slugs. Um, in terms of pests, the other thing that the ducks actually, the ducks actually eat, which we learnt, um, sort of some uh, part way into our journey with ducks, we, we learned that they also happen to like eating voles, um, specifically baby voles. So if they come across the, a, a nest of baby voles, they will gobble them up. And um, early on, we actually had quite, um, quite a lot of vole damage uh, to our blueberries where voles would sort of burrow around the roots of the blueberries and cause damage and i i don't see that anymore and i'm pretty sure that the ducks have something to do with it because um they spend a lot of time in the blueberry patch foraging around there and um they've got their beaks and all the little holes and all the mulch and stuff another reason why there's so many voles in our in our blueberry patch is because of how much mulch we use on the blueberries um so using mulch on blueberries is fantastic, but it also tends to harbor a lot of pests and things like voles. So combining the ducks with that has been, I think, incredibly beneficial. So that um, brings you, you very nicely come to the next uh, or to one of the big topics that we wanted to work with you. Mm. And uh, of course, we, we, we talked about this um, previously before this uh, interview together, but the whole the whole point of, of, of our talk was to really focus on the interactions yeah. between the different elements, which you started to introduce there and um, um, with, the, with the gardens and the ducks and also with the berries and the ducks. And we have a special, special interest in understanding your berry system mm. and how the ducks are interacting with that. And um, so, um, of course, you mentioned the... the some of the pest issues that have been controlled uh, or that are managed by the ducks, uh, which is fascinating. Um, but could you also give us a description of how they're rotated in the system? How often do you put them in there? Yeah, so like I said, we planted about 700 blueberries. Um, and there, there's more to talk about in terms of what else we planted around those blueberries and underneath the blueberries. Um, but just to start off with the ducks, um, so they spend quite a lot of time in the blueberry patch. Um, we don't have, with our ducks, we don't have a rotation. Um, we don't have a super quick rotation on our farm. So we don't rotate every sort of three days or, or even every week. We tend to spend a couple of weeks in one spot and then a couple of weeks in another spot and then a couple of weeks in another spot. Within each of those spots, there are there are rotations so because ducks can create mud when they dabble in in the fields uh they, they they can if there's any standing water and they dabble there they will create mud so so we have sort of you could divide our 10 acres up into sort of four quadrants um and they'd spend a few weeks in each of those quadrants and within each of those quadrants they'd probably spend um they'd probably spend four days um, on 
on a different spot. So there'd be a few IBCs there filled with water and we'd rotate them around inside that quadrant so that they don't create any um, negative impact on the on the soil in that one spot. So without fencing, right? With, you just you just move the IBC and yeah, the that's ducks right. follow. Yeah, yeah, okay. without fencing. So we do have fencing like between the four quadrants that I mentioned. There, there is fencing there um, that uh, that isn't perfect. I'll say like it's not that fencing is mainly for sheep, um, and it broad it broadly sort of keeps the ducks in that general area. But you, the, I mean, the ducks are basically <laughs> in our hedges. They pop through the sheep fences. They run. They love to like run up and down the hedges and like and forage in like deep within the hedges where we've just got no chance of getting them if they go in there. Um, but yeah, so the, the general quadrants that I mentioned, we, um, we have some fencing between that, but like generally speaking, we don't try and fence the ducks in. Um, we just move their water and they, and they spend the vast majority of time at those water stations. And then they do like, little sort of missions where they go off and they, they scatter out and they go and forage and then they come back to their water and then they drink and they hang out and they swim and then they do another little excursion out and they forage. So you're making them seem like such fun animals. They you know, are, when you're talking I mean, about them. Like we can imagine a group of mates, <laughs> you know, like having some fun. They are, they're incredibly busy little things and they're constantly like, they're constantly active. I mean, there, there is a time during the, the every day where they, where they'll just chill out and have a sleep. But most of the time they are like, they're not, they're like running around. They're like running to the next slug. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, so, so the reason we didn't like with the, with the fencing side of things and with the rotations, like, I can see with chickens how it might be a bit different. The way they scratch the ground creates a lot more impact than ducks generally do. Like ducks have flat feet um, and they don't scratch the ground. They do dabble in it with their beaks, but they create a lot less impact like that on, on the soil than chickens do, unless there's standing water. If there's standing water, ducks will just dive in and take advantage and you've got a problem very quickly so managing like water on our farm is is the number one challenge and the most important thing to do especially in wales but generally speaking ducks cause a lot less impact than chickens do and when we looked at our farm system and how we were going to manage ducks like trying to fence them in and rotate them was just going to be so complicated and time consuming that we just sort of let it happen and we just sort of went with the flow. Like we gently guide them with water around the farm, um, but we don't try and force them to stay in any particular spot because A, we don't really see any negative consequences. Um, and, and B, I think it would just cause us too much hassle, too much um, cost in both time and fencing um, to practically do. And in terms of predators, do you get any issues uh, due to that lack of fencing? Yeah, we do have issues. Um, but what we've got, so the, the predators are generally seasonal. So, well, first of all, 
our main problem is foxes. Um, uh, we, we do every now and then get um, uh, other little guys coming along, but it's mainly foxes that are the problem. Um, and foxes, they only really strike at night, um, except during the spring when they are feeding their young, um, when they've had a litter and they're trying to feed their young or when young foxes, young new foxes come into the territory and they don't, and they don't, no one's given them the memo on the fact that they're not meant to hunt during the day. So either juvenile foxes or hungry mothers that are trying to feed their cut, their, 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 their babies. Those are the two times when it's risky during the, the spring. Um, and so the only time they really come out during the daytime is in the spring. Uh, so most of the year, the ducks are fine because they're in very secure night housing and we've got a lot of electric um, that we keep very hot set up and that, that keeps them safe. But during the springtime, we have had, we have, we did go through a year where we had quite a few um, daytime kills. Um, and so what we've done is we've actually gone and fent, we've created a really big, um, safe zone. So we put, um, we put some fox proof electric fencing in a big ring around the blueberry patch and around our annual garden and around the duck house. Um, and during the springtime, when there's danger of daytime kills we leave the ducks in that center ring and it's a really big space so they've still got lots of room to forage but they're protected from the foxes so um so that's how we've gotten around that so far now that we've like really covered the you know the basics of 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 duck um you know we've done duck 101 um <laughs> duck production which is which is i personally didn't know much about it at all um Let's recenter a bit to ducks and berries. Yeah. Um, so how how are the ducks interact interacting with the berries? And you know, more broadly speaking, why did you integrate the ducks in the berry patch? Um, and how successful has it been? Yeah. So um, it just seemed like such a good combination, um, ducks and blueberries, because primarily at the moment it's. I'd say it's it does it's been more beneficial for the ducks than it has for the blueberries at this point, but I wouldn't say that it's been neg it's it's been negative for the blueberries. There there are pros and cons. Um, so ducks will eat blueberries. That's the first point to to make. Um, they don't preference them over a slug. Should I say that if there was a slug and a blueberry next to each other, they'd go for the slug. Um, but ducks are also very short and they don't have a very high reach. So it's, we, we are really looking at this as more, the blueberries as more of a long-term investment. Um, so as those blue, blueberry bushes typically get pretty big, I mean, I'd say probably around two meters high. So, um, in the years to come, the, the berries will not be around the base of the bush 
the vast majority of them will be well out of reach of the ducks. So from commercial point of view on the berries, we we, we look at them as more of a long-term investment. Um, the ducks don't do any other damage to the blueberry bushes apart from picking the berries that they can reach. They don't, they don't strip the bark or do anything like that. Um, they also don't scratch around the base of the blueberries like a chicken would. Um, and that's part, that was actually one of the early reasons why we decided to go for ducks over chickens is because we were mulching our blueberries with a lot of wood chip at the time. Um, and we were concerned that if we had chickens in there, they would just literally scratch all the wood chip away from underneath the blueberries. Um, also blueberries have a really fine root system, like almost like hairs that run along the surface of the soil. So they're very shallow, very fine root system. And I, we weren't too comfortable with having chickens scratching that root system too. Um, in practice, I don't know if it would have harmed them, but we just weren't comfortable with that. So, so ducks were, ducks work quite well with blueberries in that sense that, you know, they're flat footed, they, 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 they dabble a bit with their beaks, but they won't rip up the roots and they won't, um, spread the mulch around. Um, um, so yeah, I think the ducks and the blueberries play well, nicely. Um, uh, they, obviously the blueberries provide shade and shelter for the, for the ducks and they really love that. They'll go and like nest underneath the blueberry bush in, in the hot sun. Um, and because we, because we've put so much mulch down underneath the blueberries, um, and we've also planted an array of, um, beneficial, for um, not forage but beneficial um plants underneath the blueberries there's a lot of habitat there so when we set up the blueberry patch our goal was always to create as much habit habitat as we can that would collaborate or live alongside the blueberries as best as possible um and that habitat which provides lots of space for insects um and voles uh, actually provides a lot of forage for the ducks at the same time. Um, mm. So as much as possible, we wanted to try and build an ecosystem within the blueberry patch. Um, we we didn't want to use um, we didn't want to use um, you know plastic sheet mulching. Uh, permanent um you know permanent plastic to keep the weeds away um obviously we weren't going to spray any pesticides or whatever to keep the weeds away um we also decided pretty early on that it just wasn't because of the size of our blueberry patch and because of the fact that we're not using any sort of mechanized weeding systems we we decided that um weeding the blueberry patch by hand was pretty much unfeasible i mean it's it's huge and like we we tried for the first um few years weeding it and we we got lots of help but it was just like a never-ending impossible task um so we decided instead of trying to fight the weeds um we would 
we would essentially encourage growth of all sorts of different plants. We'd sow and plant as many different things as we could that we thought might be beneficial to the ecosystem in general and that might fight off the grass somewhat. Um, so as a result, we've got something of an ecosystem establishing in there and an understory underneath the blueberries, which is, which is, which is establishing and which the ducks like quite a lot. And just to, to recap, to understand where the idea of integrating both came from, it was really starting from like a slug control perspective or more from a weeding perspective. What was really the initial idea? Um, the, so the blueberry patch, so when we bought our fields and looked at that blank, blank slate and tried to figure out what on earth we were going to do, we knew we wanted a combination of things because we, we weren't going to set up a monoculture. Um, but we didn't know exactly what that combination was going to be. So we started by implementing the blueberry patch purely because that was, we knew that it was going to take five years before they started being really productive anyway. So we thought, well, we may as well get this process kickstarted. We knew we wanted blueberries. We knew we had the right soil for it. Um, we, we knew that they would grow okay in the area because we'd seen someone locally growing them. And we knew they were a high value crop um, and we liked eating blueberries ourselves. So we decided, okay, we're going to go for blueberries. And we, we, we went ahead and we just planted 700 blueberries. And then, and then we sort of moved on to the next stage, which was how are we going to manage the grass and the hedges. And we decided we'd use sheep for that. Um, and I can talk more about the tree rows that we've got separately, but it was only after getting, we just decided to go and get a handful of, we got like seven ducks uh, from a friend up the road um, just because we were interested in them. And uh, we just fell in love with ducks, to be honest with you. Um, it was only a little bit later that we decided to do ducks commercially and that they would work well with the blueberry patch. Um, there was never any... Um, requirement to reduce pests like blueberries don't tend to really suffer that much from they don't suffer from slug damage for example slugs don't really impact blueberries voles do impact blueberries we didn't actually know we'd had we would have a vol problem until it until it popped up um uh, but then we found out that the ducks were were helping with the voles in the end um so that was sort of by accident um, but, but generally the, the reason we, I, I'd say when we decided to go for ducks commercially, one of the reasons was that, that we knew that they would have less negative impact on the, the beds underneath the blueberries. And so, and that we wouldn't have to manage them too carefully under the blueberries. So I, I'd say it was. Initially, it was mostly because we thought the ducks would do less harm than chickens would do. Um, and we just really wanted to get ducks because we thought they were really cool for a number of reasons. Initially, you integrated them more out of like a, a constraint in terms of space and to be able to stack enterprises and make your like 10 acres as productive as possible rather than uh, really out of like a kind of... Uh, 
mutual beneficial interaction between two elements. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so stacking enterprises on Park Carrig was something we knew we had to do from the beginning because 10 acres was never going to be enough for a monoculture and we didn't want to do a monoculture. So we, we knew that having um, a perennial crop, some ruminants, some poultry, some trees, some annual cultivation, we knew that just having all of those things in combination on the fields would increase biodiversity and would you know would improve the the soil and if managed correctly would be beneficial generally from an ecological point of view so we knew that just having multiple different um, elements to our business and multiple different enterprises would be beneficial not only commercially but also ecologically but we didn't we didn't at that point have I think that we we started off thinking, well, the ducks are not going to do any damage to the blueberries. So that was our first, I think, point of decision making. We we did also think, well, the the ducks are at the very least going to fertilize the blueberries, you know, through their manure by foraging in there. Um, and we did quite early on uh, realize that there would be a lot of uh, habitat in the blueberry patch which the ducks could forage on so i think from the beginning it was more it was it was probably more a case of 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 realizing that the ducks would not cause any harm to the blueberries but also that the blueberries would probably provide some forage to the ducks um that makes sense it's kind of hard to thinking back now it's kind of hard to remember in which order we made those decisions but um it all kind of un- unfolded quite well i'm uh, curious about the the weeding um and in the blueberry patch um how effective are the ducks um at, at removing or at, or at taking care of the weeding operation because of, of course i imagine you're not taking uh, getting rid of all the grass You've probably got rows with some grass in between yeah. as well. But, um, you know, how much do you intervene by hand and how much do you just let the ducks do the work? Yeah, so actually, to be honest with you, the ducks do a terrible job at weeding. I mean, they don't they don't really, like I said earlier, they don't scratch around with their feet like chickens do. So chickens would actually do a better job weeding, um, but they would have to be managed a lot more carefully to concentrate that weeding. And also they'd probably cause more damage to, to the blueberries root systems than good. So the, but the ducks don't really weed because they just, they've got those flat feet and they dabble with their beaks around, around the base of the blueberries and in between the bushes looking for insects. They really are more carnivorous than they are. They don't, they much prefer eating more insects than they do herbage compared to chicken. Um, so so yeah the ducks don't really i should have uh phrased it in a in a in a different way um i didn't i wasn't i wasn't clear enough um maybe i meant about you know how effective they are at at suppressing um the grasses for example if you know if if you manage to get them in the in the patch and to really give a big hit on the grass for you know a quite significant amount of time it will really reduce the pressure of the grasses on on the berries for example and 
I'm curious to what extent you can use the ducks to to really control the grass and and, and keep it suppressed. So you're ben- at, at strategic times, so that you're benefiting the the growth and limiting of the berries, and you're limiting the competition from the grass. Yeah. Um the what the ducks tend to do with the grass is they they do they flatten it um and and i mean it's mostly the impact that ducks have on grass is mostly literally just foot traffic like lots of little flat feet Mm. busily running around and so they it is a bit like um it's not quite like like hoof impact from ruminants but it that is they they don't do they do a little bit of nibbling of the grass but they don't do much grass eating so um okay i had the understanding that they did quite a bit of foraging yeah so yeah when i say foraging i mean i'm actually purely purely talking about um insects to be honest with you okay okay nice okay that's good uh good clarification yeah that's probably something I, i i should have highlighted earlier more so is that um Another, I mean, you know, when we, when I told you about all the slugs that we had on our fields, I mean, that was another huge motivation for us to get ducks because it's something that you'll see commonly a lot on the internet um, about ducks is how much they'll eat slugs and how much they'll they'll forage for insects, more so than chickens. I mean, um, I've seen ducks neck down like, huge slugs that they nearly choked on to be honest with you like you can see them mm-hmm. literally gobble it down and go down their throat and it's like this big lump that sort of like goes down their throat they they absolutely <laughs> love it but ducks are much more carnivorous than chickens and yeah when i mean forage um i mostly mean insects although uh something really interesting happened recently which is that we um we found out that our ducks had been eating a lot. And I mean, a lot of acorns, like our, we had, um, we had a good year for acorns. Um, this, this year, the, the oaks just dropped loads. Um, and we discovered that the ducks had been completely gobbling up all the acorns. Um, and it was, they had, they were eating so much. In fact, that it was actually affecting the color of their yolks. Um, I, and I found this because I was really worried. Like we started getting these like strange green yolks on our eggs, um, like a sort of a, it's hard to describe, but a sort of a, almost like, yeah, basically just olive green yolks. And, um, usually they're like, you know, really deep, rich orange colored. Um, and I ended up finding a study that was done in like the 1940s, um, uh, where they actually did an experiment and they showed that specifically ducks, uh, although chickens also do it, but ducks particularly love acorns. Um, if you feed acorns to ducks, it takes about three or four days before their yolks start, start going green. And it's because of the tannins that are in the, the husk of, um, of the acorn. So the shell on the outside has lots of tannins in it and that actually turns their yolks uh green so so um i must have been scary at the beginning like what's happening because it's not very reassuring no, you know, in terms of green we often associate with in food as a color that's well i mean in the terms of eggs it would be a uh, something yeah, not yeah. reassuring but in this case it's it's different i wonder the influence that it would have on the 
on the taste as well. Yeah, so we we were really nervous about it because we were like, oh man, why are we getting like like loads of like rotten eggs or something? Like what's happening here? Yeah. And then a few customers actually got in touch with us and said like, hey, just so you know, like I've got this green egg popping up. <laughs> and um, yeah, we were really perturbed by it. We were um, kind of like, what's going on here? And uh, and yeah, we we initially avoided eating them and then did some research on it and um and i was initially like nah really is this true and i did more like scratching around and googling and then actually came across the study and i was like no this is legit they are actually eating acorns and and then i remembered that i had seen like absolutely tons of acorns on the field um and they had pretty much all disappeared um, since I'd seen them drop earlier this year, earlier last year. Uh, and then we realized that actually we had, we have, we, we were running two separate flocks. So one of the flocks was in an area where the acorns had been dropping and the other flock was um, in the central ring in the blueberry patch where there were no acorn tree, like no oaks. So there were no acorns in the pasture and we realized that we were getting no, there were no green eggs coming out of the one flock and all the green eggs were coming out of the other flock, which had access to acorns. Um, mm. So we were pretty convinced that it, it had to be the acorns and, and we obviously um, ate the eggs and didn't die and we were happy. With it. <laughs> the taste was slightly different. Like it, 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 it was, you'd really have to be looking for it to notice a difference in taste, but yeah, slightly okay. different. Talking about um, the acorns and the trees um, around, you mentioned, or I'd like to, to move on to talking about hedges mm. and um, that aspect of the farm, which um, you've planted a lot of. So could you maybe explain to us what species you planted around the berries um, to start off with and, and why? Because you, you, you made a, a comment about it earlier on, and I'm sure yeah. many of us are curious to, to understand more about this. Yeah, cool. So um, actually, um, when we were planting the blueberry patch and when we had come to the realization that we just weren't going to weed this thing by hand, I mean, like it was just unfeasible, we started, instead of trying to fight um, the undergrowth, we started looking at, um, what what we could sort of plant there that would compete with the grass. And we noticed that um, you actually get, in Wales, you get wild um, blueberries, obviously t tend to be more of a North American um, crop and plant. Um, but in Wales, you do get something called the bilberry. <clears throat> and they are like much smaller versions of, of blueberries. And we actually noticed that you get them growing in the hedges around the countryside here. Um, and we thought, well, okay, why don't we try and mimic the hedges to some extent um, and, and plant similar wild plants that you would see in the hedges alongside these cultivated blueberries. Um, and so we went down a path of sort of, seeding and planting a bunch of different things in the blueberry patch underneath the blueberries. I mean, 
we planted like we planted a lot like a lot of different stuff and a lot of it's disappeared and some of it survived and then we've also had volunteers come up of other things but we planted things like cow parsley and yarrow aquilegia we planted various bulbs um various alliums and daffodils which you get in the hedges here you get a lot of wild garlic in the hedges here which i don't know if you guys have come across but it's like it's this really awesome just like leaf sort of um sort of succulent leafy green that you get in the hedges which if you crush it it just stinks like garlic so in the spring you just get you walk down the hedges and you just smell garlic everywhere um so we we planted we planted little bulbs of wild garlic in the blueberry patch um you also get wild strawberries in the hedges here so we we planted cultivated strawberries um in the blueberry patch um and that's been actually we spent quite a bit of time doing that and it's quite a large part of our strategy in the blueberry patch which is that because strawberries spread so quickly and so easily um, and they compete incredibly well with the grass, we just figured, well, we'll just plant as many strawberry runners as we can underneath the blueberries um, and let them run wild, basically. And, um, and we'll harvest the strawberries for ourselves. And if they do particularly well, we'll sell them. And we've done that. And it's actually worked incredibly well. Like, the strawberries have spread a lot underneath the blueberries and I, it's difficult to tell whether they're competing. Um, uh, yeah, that was my concern Yeah. right now. I was thinking to, I was about to ask you, you know, how, how is it that dealing with competition because standard procedure would have, you know, like, let's say wood chip underneath and just keeping it at that, especially in the establishment phase. Yeah. So we do, we do actually mulch, um, so we so we're using a combination of mulch and understory. So we do actually mulch directly underneath the blueberry, um, and we started off using wood chip, um, but wood chip became, for various reasons, impractical because of the fact that it's actually becoming kind of expensive to get people. It used to be a waste product, and now it's become really popular, and getting hold of wood chip is quite difficult. Um, for the right price. And when you're doing it on that kind of scale, it, it gets quite expensive. It's also quite a heavy and bulky thing to move around. Um, and I was getting silage trailers, like tractor si loads of silage trailers coming onto the field. I mean, we had, in one year, we put eight silage trailers of wood chip on the blueberry patch. Um, and we did that all by hand by wheelbarrow. And it was just it was immense. It was so much work. Um, and it literally like rotted away within kind of 18 to 24 months. I mean, it, yeah, pretty much 18 months and the weeds were coming back up through it. So, so we've now moved over to using, um, sheep's wool actually. So we, when we shear the sheep in, in the springtime, um, we, we use their wool underneath the blueberries and, uh, we also get wool from some of our neighbors and we use that underneath the blueberries. Um, wool's like an incredible mulch. It's amazing. It like, it takes years and years for it to rot down. Um, and it creates this like really like, um, dense, 
matte. Like once it gets wet and it sort of partially rots down, it like it just creates this like sort of really dense like carpet around the base of of the blueberries. Um, so we're using wool at the moment directly under the blueberries, and then in between the spaces of the blueberries because the beds are quite big, you know, and there's quite a lot of space between the blueberries because they're still young. That's where we're planting and focusing our efforts on the strawberries and the various other things that we've, we've put in there. Um, so yeah. And then as time goes by, we expect the blueberries to get much bigger and start shading out underneath themselves and in between themselves. Um, so we don't expect too much competition and problem, you know, in the next sort of five years time. Um, but whilst they're all still small, we, we use, we use wool underneath them. It's interesting. You mentioned that because, um, um, it's like, you know, you've decided to, um, wood chips was, um, was a strategy, let's say, but you've, the, the, um, which would limit the weeds more or maybe limit the competition more for a certain period of time, but it's so much effort and energy uh, that it become you know, you can compromise by doing what the strategy that you've been trying out over there and, and doing with the, with the strawberries, for example, which may bring some more competition, which may, you know, maybe reduce the, the time at which or increase the time at which you'll harvest berries, but um, it's going to be much less uh, energy and labor intensive. So, yeah. right. There's a, there's a compromise there to, to choose. I, I can expect huh, in this, yeah. in, in your case. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's similar to the ducks and the fencing and the rotations. It's like we, the, the cost and benefit just didn't really weigh up for us. Um, yeah. And yeah, we, I mean, wood chip is amazing. I love wood chip. I've used a lot of it in various parts of the field. Um, you know, if I was doing, if I was managing a much smaller space, um, with perennials, I'd, I'd choose wood chip every time. Um, but on that kind of scale by hand, by wheelbarrow, it's just, it just wasn't worth it. So, um, so yeah, the, the wool works well. And also just on the strawberries, um, I mean, it's difficult to tell how much competition, there is between the strawberries and the blueberries, but um, I know that strawberries tend to be, uh, they tend to want a lot more fertilizer, they're heavier feeders, whereas blueberries tend to, um, they fruit better when you, when there's less nitrogen. So the more nitrogen you give a blueberry, the more leafy green it gets and the less of a heavy crop you'll tend to get they tend to put more energy into growing new shoots um so certainly in the establishment phase you could argue that you know your blueberries will enjoy all that nitrogen and they'll put on lots of bushy growth and and then you can get your berries further down the line but um yeah i think the blueberry patch for us has really been um it's it's been quite an experiment and we see it very much as a long-term endeavor and a long-term investment um i'd i'm more interested in what it's going to do after a decade of being planted um because our cash our you know our cash crops are really the duck eggs primarily and then our annual cultivation and our sheep those are those quickly turn around cash for us but with the blueberries, I kind of look at them as a, as a sort of a, 
10-year investment. And I know that, um, you know, there are blueberry um, blueberry uh, plantations in Poland, I think, and in North America that are nearly 100 years old. So they've, they've got a lot of life in them. Um, and it's more of a long game. But, you know, if we were going to plant blueberries commercially and really and really make the best of them honestly just putting them in just putting them in straight rows with you know plastic mulch and fertilizer and all that stuff would do loads better you know like <laughs> in fact we're um yeah. we're actually one of i i think we're one of two maybe three organic blueberry growers in the whole of the uk um, the rest of the blueberry growers in the UK all grow them in pots in polytunnels um, with loads of specific um, sort of acid-loving uh, compost and fertilizers specifically suited to blueberries. Um, and that's, that's, that's the commercial blueberries grown in the UK. You just, I, I think that growing organic blueberries outdoors in the UK is very niche and very experimental. Um, and to really make it work commercially, I think is, is in the short term is not really possible. It's, it's much more of a, a long game than, um, than a quick turnaround. So, so yeah, when it comes to, you know, planting an understory underneath the blueberries, um, I'm not too bothered about short-term competition. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, when you, when you think about sort of Mark Shepard's approach, his, um, his stun, stun approach, you know, sheer total utter neglect. I am a little bit, I do, I am warm to the idea of actually going, all right, we've planted 700 blueberries in this patch. Um, we've given them a little bit of a hard time um, compared to most commercial plantations. Maybe only 400 of them actually make it through the first five years and turn into big bushes. But at least then we'll have 400, you know, really strong genetic examples in the patch. Um, and we're prepared to wait because basically... We've got all the other businesses, the enterprises on Park Carrig helping us, you know, get along in the beginning, um, cash-wise. Josh, um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I'm seeing the the clock is ticking. And I did want to ask a bit about the other trees you've planted beyond the blueberry patch and understand a bit more about the hedges yeah. and the trees you might have planted. Yeah, so, um, so we... As I said earlier, the, sh the sheep do a fantastic job for us in terms of managing the grass and trimming the hedges back. Um, so they keep the hedges in, in shape and, uh, and the grass and the edges under control. Um, we manage our hedges by hand, um, which is a hell of a task and one which, to be honest with you, we're a little bit behind on. But what we've primarily been doing at this point is um, growth that's growing sideways into the field. We've been trimming off and feeding to the sheep in the summer. Um, so it provides really nice tree fodder for the sheep. 
um, and there are various sort of benefits for parasites and whatnot for the sheep. Um, and then we we're trimming, we're sort of training the the trees and the hedges to be more um, suited for coppicing. So in the future, we would like to coppice the hedges and lay the hedges as well. So there'll be areas where we'll, where we'll use them for coppicing for firewood, and then there'll be areas where we'll lay them um, uh, to create, to create a, sort of a living fence. Um, so that's how we're approaching the perimeter hedges. Um, it's it's how it would have been done back in the day, but obviously these days they you know they flail them with tractors and they they don't they don't um, they don't manage them by hand anymore. Um, in the fields we've gone for we've also planted tree rows, so we've divided our fields up into several blocks, um, into quite a few blocks actually. Um, and we've we've used trees to to split the fields up and to create smaller paddocks for our grazing and our rotations. So we rotate our sheep from block to block um, or paddock to paddock every three to four days, um, depending on the season, depending on how quickly the grass is growing, depending depending on what the parasites are doing at that time of year, depending on how warm and wet it is. Um, we might speed up or slow down our rotations. Um, and uh, the tree rows that we've planted are all, the purpose of them is for coppicing and is for firewood for our home. Um, so as well as um, fodder for the sheep. Um, what, what species did you did you plant in these uh, specific um, tree um, rows? Tree rows, yeah. Yeah, we've planted um, willow, biomass willow, Salix verminalis. Um, we've planted poplar, biomass poplar, which are, um, we've planted a few different hybrids. Um, again, these are also, these are all species that are suited for short rotation coppicing. Um, another one that we've planted is uh, gray alder. If you if you know that I don't know if you guys have that one with you. Yeah, we have them in in uh, wet places. I'm yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they've actually the the older has done like incredibly well in our fields. I'd say they're probably the best out of out of any, which sort of um, gives you an idea of how wet it is where we are. Um, we've also planted hazels, um, sycamores. And we did try field maple, although field maple didn't do too well. So um, a lot of people are like, why are you planting sycamores in your fields? Because sycamores are generally considered a weed tree in the UK. Um, but we love them because the sheep love them. Uh, they have really sweet leaves for the sheep and um, they grow like stink. Um, and they're really hardy. So, um, and they also drop loads of, you know, little saplings, um, little the seedlings into the pasture, which um, if they sprout are just nice little snacks for the sheep. So mm. um, 
so yeah sycamore is is one which we've only recently put in the ground but um we've had a few in the hedges that um that we've some of them in the hedges we've allowed we've allowed the sheep like um really frequent access to and we've just been amazed at how much the sheep can hammer back the sycamores and they just keep coming back and they just don't look bothered by it at all they just the regrowth on them is so quick and the sheep seem to love them so much so um that's very interesting so yeah we we've we we've planted um a row of sycamore we've got hazels we've got alder as i said poplar and willow um the alder is amazing in the sense that so it's not really got much value as fodder for the sheep um although they nibble on it they really don't like it um so much so that actually we've um we've got one particular row of alder where um we haven't yet put up our permanent fencing around us um and so i just decided last year because we were so busy last year um i just decided ah oh, screw this i'm not going to bother fencing around it every time because it, it was just too much hassle so i just decided to they were already quite well established um and i just decided to let the sheep have full access to them so that they could graze underneath them as well as around them um and i did that for the whole of last year um and they're absolutely fine the sheep have rubbed on some of them cracked one or two nibbled on a little bit of bark but pretty much like the damage is hardly any and for the for the time and energy involved in fencing around it um i'm very happy i like i I wouldn't bother fencing around it again to be honest with you having said that if they were really young um like newly planted i think that would be a problem um it would set them back quite a lot but these ones were already already sort of two years old by the time uh i did this Josh, could you um, could you um, just to step out in a, to go into a, a to look at the bigger picture? Could you give us um, a bit of an idea of what were the objectives that you were looking for when you planted out the hedge? I imagine there's various. It would be good to, to just give us a, a brief overview as to why did you put these fences out? Sorry, these hedges. I'm, I was I used the wrong um, the wrong word. The the hedges. Yeah. So. Um... I actually call them tree rows only because they look very different to our hedges. Um, they, you know, they're single. They're, they're a sing. Uh, we're, we're planting them in single varieties, so um, we're just planting like a block of willow, a block of poplar, um, a block of hazel, a block of alder, a block of sycamore, and we've done them like that um, to make harvesting for firewood more practical. So. We, we're harvesting one type of wood at the same time that's grown roughly the same rate. But to step back a little bit, um, uh, we, we put tree rows in, in in pasture for a number of reasons. And I mean, when most of the local farmers look at what we've done, they think it's crazy because we've taken some perfectly neat square blank fields of grass and we've gone and planted trees in the middle of them. And they think that that's absolute sacrilege and crazy but we've done it because 
it breaks up the fields into smaller paddocks. It helps us um, with our rotations with the sheep around the field. Um, it provides shade and shelter for the sheep. Um, it provides fodder for the sheep. When we trim the trees, we chop and drop the trees and the sheep love it. Um, it provides habitat for insects and birds. Um, it helps with heavy rainfall on the fields. It helps with water infiltration to slow down runoff on the fields. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I've covered all the benefits of having trees there, but it's, it's brilliant. And I mean, visually, it just looks so much more beautiful to have rows of trees in a field, I think, than to have a big blank field. Um, yeah. Josh, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, kind of uh, taking the interview to an end, but there is a big question. Um, we've talked a lot about diversity, about stacking productions, um, and clearly there's a lot of benefits to that in terms of productivity um, and using the space that you have uh, well. But what kind of, what are the main challenges that it, um, that it sets out for you? Because I'm sure it's not all simple to have that many uh, different things going on at the same time and um, interacting together. Yeah, absolutely. Like when we started on Park Carrick, we, um, we were quite naive in the sense that we thought we were going to be able to have essentially four, five, six different businesses and we were going to be able to manage them all at the same time. And trying to juggle all these different things together is really difficult. Um, you know, managing the sheep, especially when you've got, you've got the ducks, you've got the collecting of the eggs, you've got managing, managing the ducks during droughts when there's no water and you lambing at the same time and, you know, um, trying to rotate the sheep at the same time. And then you've got to weed the blueberries because in the spring, the weeds just go crazy in the spring. And although, as I've said, we're not weeding them anymore. Um, and then, yeah, there's just so much to try and stay on top of. And I think that it is a massive challenge. And what we've had to do over the last couple of years is to really um, become a lot more brutal when it comes to making decisions about what gets done on the farm. Um, we, we have to make sure that we can earn a living and that we are doing, we are looking after the livestock and keeping them healthy. Um, we can't get stressed out about weeds in the blueberry patch, for example, like there's no point in fighting that. Um, with the sheep, for example, we don't pamper them. Like we just, We can't afford to, in both time and money, <clears throat> we manage them, we rotate them, we give them um, habitat and good fodder and forage, but like we can't pamper them in terms of, you know, regular worming and regular vaccination. So um, we, we prefer to select sheep that are less labor intensive, that are naturally more healthy And ones that don't thrive, we we let them go. We you know we don't we don't put too much effort into trying to keep everything alive, um, because 
if we just let nature take its course most of the time, we save ourselves a lot of time. Um, having said that, Park Carrig still needs a lot of management to to keep the cogs turning and to keep the business running and to keep things running smoothly. So I guess just finding a balance between, um, you know, um, taking a sort of a stun approach as Mark Shepard would call it and a really intensively managed approach, finding some sort of balance between those two ends of the spectrum is really important um, when it comes to your time and, and, you know, money expenditure on the farm. Josh, did you, um, do you wish you had um, um, started with less diversity on the farm or are you comfortable with, with how much you've done and are you planning even to put more, to integrate even more into the operation? Oh, I absolutely don't regret um, planting all the trees and the shrubs that we have. Um, I, and we have plans to put in a lot more uh, because as far as we see it, you know, especially for the duck enterprise, the more trees and shrubs that we have on Park Carrig, um, as well as pasture, the better for the ducks and also for the sheep, to be honest, the, for the sheep, they really enjoy having a tree or a shrub to, to sit underneath. So we're going to be planting a lot more over the years. Um, uh, we, uh, we have slowed down planting new things in the last few years, just because as the business has scaled up, we've gotten more and more busy trying to keep the business running. So we have slowed down, but I don't regret any of the early, any of the, um, early plantings that we did. Um, I'm very happy with the, with the selection of things that we've got going on on the fields. Um, if I was going to go back, I might change a few things, purely logistical things like slight, you know, I'd make changes to the layout and exactly how we've laid things out, but it's very difficult to see those things up front until such time as you've actually worked with, with them over, um, over a few years. And especially when you've mm -hmm. got no experience farming at all, um, you know, knowing, knowing exactly where you want to put your track and your water pipes and your tree rows and all the stuff, it's kind of impossible if you've got no experience. Um, to be honest, it's very incredible, uh, what you've achieved in four years with so little farming experience and, I would really advise um, all of the listeners that have made it this far um, to go on uh, the Instagram um, of Park Craig and check out lots of videos about ducks <laughs> hanging out in lines, running around. It's amazing. And lots of uh, the systems um, that, are, that have been set up there. So um, it, it's very, uh, I spent quite a lot of time on, on your Instagram looking at the pictures. You've done a really good job at, uh, at, um, at, um, at showing the work you've done there and at uh, describing the systems there. Uh, the pictures are really good and the descriptions Thanks. are really good. Um, but um, Josh, uh, it's been uh, an hour and a half now and um, uh, we will we'll need to take this interview to an end for mm -hmm. all of our health. 
um, and well-being. We need to go sleep. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for um, your time and for uh, and for describing your farm so well and explaining to us all of your decision process. It was really interesting. It was really really interesting. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Um, I really appreciate you having me on, and it's been great to chat with you. Thanks for making it this far, and we really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Please feel free to get in touch, you know how, um, through our website, social media, or email. And you'll find all the useful links just below in the description, as usual. <laughs>